Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. Hello, loyal listeners. I'm your host, Tom Varghese. When one mentions the town of Cupertino, California, one naturally thinks of global giant Apple Incorporated. But what one forgets is that Apple came into existence in 1977 and took four decades to become the force it is today. Before that, Cupertino was largely a town of ranches and the occasional vineyard. And amidst this backdrop starts the origin story of a very unique leader in adult cardiac surgery, Dr. Sarah Pereira. Dr. Pereira is a professor of surgery and program director of the Cardiothoracic Surgery Fellowship and Integrated Thoracic Surgery Residencies at the University of Utah. She received her undergraduate degree from the University of California, Berkeley, and medical degree from University of California, Irvine. After general surgery training at the University of Cincinnati and CT Surgery Fellowship at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, she started her academic career at UAB, and then after several years, went into practice in Western Colorado at St. Mary's Medical Center for approximately 10 years. In 2017, she returned to UAB and became very active in resident education in structural heart disease. After a national search, she was recruited to the University of Utah and has continued her amazing work. In today's Same Surgeon, Different Light podcast, we start with her journey from a ranch near an orange farm in Cupertino, how caring for her mother through illness inspired a career in medicine, her discovery of a love of surgery during medical school, her unique perspectives having lived in both academic and community practices, her thoughts on leadership, and the issues impacting training and the workforce in our field. Our discussion is wide-ranging and thought-provoking. Join us for an amazing discussion with Dr. Sarah Pereira in today's Same Surgeon, Different Light. Dr. Pereira, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Tom. It's an honor and a privilege to be speaking with you. Well, you, you, the honor's ours. Well, we'll go ahead and start deep diving. Tell us a little bit of yourself. I mean, your origin story is uh, quite unconventional, to say the least. Uh, tell us about where you grew up, 
uh, your parents and your family were. Let, let's go ahead and get started there. Yeah, you know, I uh, if you would have asked me when I was a child growing up in Northern California what I would do with my life, I would have had absolutely no idea. Um, I grew up in a town called Cupertino, California, which was in uh, the Silicon Valley area, but really uh, my parents bought a little 1500 square foot house, uh, a little pink ranch right by an orange farm. And uh, I grew up there with my sister before Apple Computer moved in and made it big. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I could tell you that the uh, the houses in Cupertino, California are probably all starting at about two million now, despite the size. But it used to be a really small little kind of lower middle class, middle class town. But growing up, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, your parents themselves have uh, I mean, it, it's a fascinating story about how they met itself. Uh, correct, sir? Yeah. So. You know, my father came from a family of uh, Mexican and Portuguese immigrants, and uh, the story that he always told us was that my little grandmother Juanita was uh, crossing the border pregnant with him, and he was the oldest of three sons, and they settled on a leased piece of land up in Half Moon Bay, California, which was a dairy farm. And um, my father was expected to uh, work on the farm and support his family. And so he never finished high school um, as he couldn't speak English very well, but he ended up getting a GED. And uh, then really was a math whiz and kind of taught himself computing and engineering and ended up working for this company called Litton Industries. and. Um, they made microwave equipment um, kind of in submarines in the aerospace industry. Uh, and so my dad was working there and just peeking around the corner at my mother when she got hired there out of uh, San Jose State. And they ended up dating and meeting. And I guess the rest was history. <laughs> That's amazing. But your mother, of course, uh, her background was quite un uh, different from your father's. Um, uh, how, uh, tell us about that. Yeah, my mother was, uh, I guess she was pretty progressive for her era and probably the hardest working, kindest little lady I've ever met. She was five foot zero and a hundred pounds and and she grew up in a um, Pennsylvania Dutch family with um, seven brothers and sisters and ended up moving. They ended up moving out to California so that she could attend college. She was the oldest of all the um, kids and she was a um, math and physics major at San Jose State, ended up getting an MBA later in life. Um, but she worked at Lytton and then Lockheed and uh, Ford Industries, and she was an aerospace software designer. So really, uh, my husband jokes with me these days saying that my mother and I had so much in common because we both kind of raised the family financially, but um, she was just the nicest woman you would ever meet, and you would never know that she was so highly educated. That's incredible. And so obviously with two parents, who somehow gravitated to the field of math, you went into college thinking that that's where math and physics, that's that's where your destination was. Um, yeah, I mean, I only applied to like six colleges in California and um, knew that I couldn't afford to go to any kind of private schools. So ended up going to Cal Berkeley and 
and you know worked my way through college at the time um but i i thought i would do be a math major and did a couple years of math and economics and business and then um, changed routes when my mother got really suddenly very sick in her mid to late 40s um as soon as i went to college would you be willing to share us a little bit more details about because that was really your first encounter with the world of medicine was through your mother's illness. Is that correct to state? Yeah, you know, my mother's family uh, was, I guess, an extraordinarily close-knit family from small town Pennsylvania, and they have a lot of hereditary autoimmune diseases in their family, which I hadn't realized until um, getting older, but she had uh, three siblings that had hemochromatosis, and then she developed primary biliary cirrhosis um, really very suddenly. In fact, she started turning yellow when I was a freshman in college and she was diagnosed in an urgent care clinic with liver failure. Um, and between that urgent care appointment and then end stage liver disease to listing was about six weeks. Um, so she was- one listing, of first... listing for a liver transplant. Correct. Yeah. And so she was one of the first liver transplants that was done at what was then called California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. And I think um, she had her transplant in November of my freshman year of college um, and spent wow. about five months in the hospital. Uh, I, I don't know how you did that. I mean, it's, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, so you're at Cal Berkeley, you know, you're, you've got your life all organized, set in front of you, you've got, you're now dealing with a serious illness in your family, uh, upends your world, but, you know, how do you manage all that? I mean, uh, I mean, take us back. You know, I think in similar ways that I tell some of our patients to manage their illnesses now, you know, I think that I didn't know any better. It was really my father parked himself at the hospital and my sister and I were both in college and and I drove to San Francisco across the Bay Bridge every night to see her and did my homework at her bedside. And um, I think, you know, there wasn't any other choice to it. Um, but I guess being very naive to medicine and not knowing anything about medicine at that time, I, I probably had absolutely no idea how sick she was and that, you know, she was ultimately in a coma and, and listed and had a liver pretty quickly. Um, but I think I didn't know any other way and just found it fascinating every day to sit at her bedside and see the physicians and nurses and healthcare workers come in and out and trying to process all of that information together as you know, a college student that didn't know anything about medicine was, um, I guess, what shaped me into wanting to be that physician for my patients' families. And she did well for 16 years after her liver transplant, uh, meaning lived a great life, um, getting back to what she wanted to do in life and obviously engaged back with the family, uh, correct? Yeah, I mean, she did amazingly well. She went back to work full time. Um, I think month six, she went back to work um, full time and ultimately um, developed renal failure um, in her early 60s. And then she ended up uh, shockingly having a, a aortic valve mitral valve replacement from what they called rheumatic disease, but I'm not sure if it was rheumatic disease or kidney failure at that point. And um, 
And then after the the heart surgery and the kidney failure, she really, you know, kind of never um, recovered from that in terms of going back to work. But I would say that she was back to work for 13 years after. 13 years after yeah. Wow. And so as a result of these experiences, you then switched your major in college from math, physics to pre-med, um, obviously then went into medical school. Uh, what what specialty were you thinking about when you reached medical school? You know, when I went to medical school, Tom, I thought I would be a pediatrician. <laughs> um, I uh, I really had no idea what I wanted to do other than medicine, but but never really saw myself being a surgeon or a pediatrician, and certain or I'm sorry, a surgeon or even a cardiac surgeon, but. Um, I guess I just took it one day at a time and gravitated towards surgery and all my clerkships. And um, so did the decision to go into surgery come first and then CT surgery afterwards, or were they both kind of simultaneous? Yeah, I went into pediatrics. I'm sorry. I, I tried to convince myself to do pediatrics over and over. And I was in kind of a longer term relationship at the time. And, and my, um, fiance at that time really didn't want me to be a surgeon looking at the lifestyle. And so I tried everything possible to get myself to do family medicine, pediatrics, um, anything else. Um, but I guess, I guess I just absolutely love surgery. And so I decided to go into general surgery um, pretty late in the process. And then did you have I guess it, throughout this, while you're kind of doing the self-discovery and realizing that surgery or surgical discipline was what was meant to you, did you have role models at that time or somebody you could ask for advice or was this kind of, you were just experiencing this and you need to have that individual soul searching first before making that commitment? So I was really lucky in my third year of medical school, I met an otolaryngologist who was actually a pediatric otolaryngologist. Um, Cynthia Reyes, who was at UC Irvine, and, and she was absolutely incredible. And she was the first person that I had ever met that I um, could see myself like. And so she pushed me in every direction to go into ENT. Um, I kind of met her through the Children's Hospital on my pediatrics rotation. And honestly, she's the first person that um, really told me that I could be a surgeon and that, um, you know, women can do this also and Hispanic women can do this also. And so I remember writing a case report and doing some um, little research projects with her. And then ultimately, after doing my ENT rotation, I, I just couldn't see myself being an otolaryngologist. Um, but I absolutely adored surgery. And she, to this day, was probably the first and only female mentor I ever had. Wow. Uh, and which back then it was that in itself was, and you mentioned both as a woman uh, surgeon leader, but also as a Hispanic leader as well, that, that that combination was quite unique in those days. Yeah, she was incredible. And even through all of general surgery, she was uh, my only female mentor and kept in touch. And, um, and I still thank her to this day. That's, that's incredible. Uh, and then CT surgery that started after you started your surgical residency at the University of Cincinnati, correct? 
So I decided um, when I was at Cincinnati that I would be a trauma surgeon. Um, and my mentors there were um, really incredible um, people and role models to me. Um, and they were both trauma surgeons. And, um, you know, honestly, I almost dropped out during general surgery because uh, there were several other women in um, Cincinnati that did drop out. And it was, uh, uh, it was a pretty tough program, you know, and I think I was a little bit naive going from California um, to Cincinnati at that time, thinking that maybe I would do pediatric surgery, but after getting there, kind of changed the path to trauma um, because of my mentors. But I did a thoracic surgery rotation with John Howington, his first year on faculty at Cincinnati, kind of towards the end of my third clinical year in Cincinnati and just fell in love with the lung, Tom. And I, I just absolutely thought that was so cool and loved it. And John really encouraged me. Uh, you know, I had like two months to get my applications in for fellowship and, uh, and, and did that. And I guess after that, I never looked back. So how did we get a spectacular leader that was gravitating towards what I love in thoracic surgery Go to the dark side of the force in cardiac. Please explain that to me. <laughs> well, I loved thoracic surgery. And, you know, I mean, I, when I finished my fellowship, I um, stayed on faculty in Alabama for a couple of years. And I was so torn because I loved cardiac and I loved thoracic. And, um, and at the time, I didn't really have anybody helping me to make those decisions about how to subspecialize, how to be an academic surgeon, how to raise my kids, you know, I was pregnant at the time. And um, preg pregnant during fellowship. Uh, no, it was I waited, right afterwards. Yeah, I ended up getting married the year I finished fellowship and then got pregnant my second year in practice. And I didn't know how to do it. And so um, when a private practice position in Colorado came up kind of spur of the moment, I thought, well, this is great. I can do hearts and lungs. I love both. And, um, and you know, Robert Serfolio would never let me give up lungs at the time. And so I was kind of pulled in many different directions. Um, and ultimately, that was why I left academics to go to private practice was just because I didn't see any other way that I could have done it 18 years ago um, to, um, to do both take I mean, myself successful. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so you went to Colorado. Uh, describe for us how that was. I mean, it, there were good things and bad things, in your opinion, about the private practice experience. That is, you were in uh, you know, finished fellowship, first first couple of years at UAB. Now you're back at private practice. Describe the journey during the, those that period of time. Yeah, you know, I I would say that I. Um... I went into it a little bit naive, you know, and I, I thought that I was this experienced person two years out of a great training program and that I could operate and I could do it. But um, I found that I was often just by myself on Friday night and Saturday night, taking care of really sick people in, um, even though it was a pretty rural Western Colorado practice, we covered, you know, 11 different tiny hospitals. And so people got flown in with dissections all the time. And we covered everything short of transplantation. Um, and then I also did vascular. 
So I covered all the open ruptured AAA emergencies at the time, and I did endoscopic, uh, endovascular um, vascular practice. And it was just, I think it was just too large of a um, area to keep yourself all current on practicing and all that. And I didn't feel like I had great support from my two colleagues, uh, especially at night and weekends, you know, when they would go out of town. And so I certainly learned by making mistakes and, um, and I really dearly paid for three mistakes I made with, you know, malpractice and, and, uh, you know, burnout and depression. And I think um, that was the negative of the practice. The positive of the practice was that I operated like crazy, you know, I was very, I guess, successful in outcomes and learned a lot and had great friends and my kids were raised by their father that was able to stay at home. And that's what was great about the practice. But so in the midst of, I mean, we hear all these terms thrown out these days of work-life balance and work-life integration. But bluntly speaking, this was a period of time that it was a lot of work-life chaos, actually, because you're trying to, you know, one perspective, you you have good outcomes. Granted, there were a couple of issues, but there, there was still overall, your patients overall well did well. You're operating like crazy, but you started to realize that there was a lot of chaos going on. And so, you know, take us back a little bit through that soul searching. I mean, part of it is the recognition that this wasn't sustainable going forward, correct? Yeah, I think that I realized that I couldn't cover cardiac, thoracic, and vascular and do it all really well and be on call every second to third night um, in a time where we didn't have mid-levels taking the pager at night, you know, so you got called every night, all night long for the ICU. And um, I don't think that it was a sustainable model um, and I still really feel for surgeons that go out young and take some of these community practice jobs where they won't have backup in the middle of the night. And so I really, um, I think that it could have gone both ways with myself. And so the reason that I push so hard in education for our trainees now is to really help them, you know, not get into those situations that I found myself in. Um, you know, I remember sitting down with my husband and my good friends one night saying, you know, should I still do this job? Should I stay here? Or should I, you know, go do locums and just have, you know, shift work? Um, or should I go back to academics where I felt really supported? Um, and fortunate for me, I really had the opportunity to do that. Um, but I think that we all see um, early early graduates these days that are struggling. And um, I think we all really work hard to help younger surgeons. But but a testament that one of the things that you had done was you had done such great work in your training program and you had maintained those relationships with the faculty back at UAB that ultimately when you decided that that current position in Colorado wasn't sustainable, the way you got back into academia was get, connecting back to the training program you were at before. Um, yeah, it, I mean, is, I that a, is that a great had, way of framing that? I had interviewed for, you know, multiple jobs through the years, you know, I was in Colorado for 10 years, but nothing ever came up that was that 
desirable for me to move my family. And, um, and I think that when um, my mentors in Alabama called me and were really interested in having me come back and help establish the um, newer fast track training program, I think that that was just really desirable for me because I missed that spark of, you know, educating young surgeons and teaching them technical, you know, little tidbits in the operating room. And I think for me, that was really um, just a new light bulb in my career that um, has, I guess, pushed me to the next level of, of education. And uh, that, uh, tell us about that transition back from private practice to academics, because even though you were on academics for a couple of years, obviously you were in private practice for a long, uh, a significant period of time. And so there must've been a growth curve or a transition period in terms of going from private practice back to the academic uh, realm. Uh, tell us about yeah, that. I guess it was, it was a really great transition for me personally. Um, I would say that it was uh, extraordinarily hard for my family to move from Colorado to Alabama, but um for me, my motivation was um, one that I could focus just on cardiac, which ultimately I, I felt like I had more um, talent and dedication for cardiac. And I really wanted to do structural heart. And so for me, when I went back to academics, I spent a year just, I mean, doing every transcatheter case I could get my hands on and then doing um, just adult cardiac and complex adult cardiac work. And so for me, it was paradise. I mean, I, I think I did three or 400 cases my first year back and it was just like amazing, you know, high risk practice and learn Tavers. And, um, and we had a really amazing team and amazing, it, the job was great. And you actually uh, describe that as your greatest professional achievement is climbing out of that um, I guess, for lack of a better word, that hole in your career or the depths of where, though it's some people on the outside would have said that, oh, you are successful, but you realize that you were burnt out and it, it that it wasn't sustainable. But the ability to climb out of that, that, that is what you describe as your per greatest professional achievement. I guess it's easy to say that now looking back, I, I don't know if you felt that way right during during that transition. You know, I did. I I felt like being back in academics was just so liberating for me. You know, you have all the modern everything. You know, I think um, private practice in a small town was fairly isolating. And I, I really spent a lot of time kind of reviewing the jobs of our trainees before they, you know, take their jobs. And we talk about, you know, what kind of lifestyle and what motivates them because, from my experience, just being back in the academic environment was exciting. You know, you got the modern valves, you got the new devices, you, you know, you saw the newest transcatheter sheet first. And, and then, you know, you have medical students and residents and people that um, are just so excited to be in medicine and surgery. And for me, um, that's what drives me every day now is just seeing the progress and the learning and and how people, um, how everybody progresses at a different path in our specialty. That, that's incredible. 
One of the things I guess we were very fortunate here at the University of Utah, and so full disclosure to our audience, obviously, uh, Dr. Pereira is a, a partner of mine in our uh, division, is that we were extremely fortunate to recruit her back out here to the Mountain West um, a, as the program director. D tell us about that, because that must have, there must, in some ways, yes, there was a, a new leadership position, but but in other ways, it must have torn at you because you you were very successful in Alabama and probably established great friendships. Uh, tell us about that, you know, going through the soul searching. Um, I, I know it's not just because people like myself are very convincing. I mean, there must have been other aspects too for you to take the leap and get, get take the job over here. But tell us to walk us through that process. You know, Tom, I think that... Um my biggest fear was not being able to follow in your foot, footsteps <laughs> in this program. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think with COVID, it made all of us kind of think about what's important to us, you know, yeah. and my girls are now 13 and 15 and they were 11 and 13 at the time. And I think when COVID hit, um, and when Craig Saltzman first called me, I just thought, absolutely not. You know, I can't move my children, you know, five years after I moved them. And um, but then I think with COVID, you know, we saw that family really is very important. And, you know, you need to live somewhere that you really enjoy, not only the people, but the lifestyle. And I think for my family, um, Alabama was um, suffocating for them. You know, they always asked when they could ski on weekends and when could we go bike mom. And, and so I think um, I flew them out to Utah in mid COVID with masks and everything when no one was traveling. And we uh, toured the city and we, you know, went outside and went on hikes and, and ultimately I left it up to my family. And so it was not a position that um, that I was going to take if I didn't get three yeses from my family. One of the powers of uh, recruiting with mountains uh, nearby. Yeah, <laughs> so right, great. right, right. <laughs> and they are looking forward to skiing this year again. So again, I, I yes. guess it was uh, a good decision. No, it's it's it's. Uh, it's uh, I guess, um, you know, you've, uh, for the listeners out there, Dr. Pereira is unbelievably humble. I mean, she's taken our training program to the next level. And, and we really are grateful for her being here with us. But uh, Sarah, if I were to ask you or put you on the spot a little bit, what would you describe as your leadership style? Because we know there's a lot of styles out there, but what would what would the thing that would be the best way to describe the way you approach um, your role in the position as the program director? Gosh, that's a hard question, Tom. I guess I have so many different roles in the program. Um, you know, I think that with your leadership and Craig Seltzman's leadership in this program, I think we've always had the people here. So I don't know what my leadership style is other than I try to treat the trainees as if I would, would have wanted to be treated when I was a resident. And, um, and I think that education is different nowadays than it was when we were residents. You know, I think there's there's a lot more need to be um, kind of accepted as family and get constant feedback. And so 
I mean, they all kind of call me the mom around here, you know, but I guess <laughs> I have so many roles in promoting promoting their education, their wellness, you know, their family life and, and everybody progresses at a different level. Yeah. Um, which, which is challenging because in the, as your role as a program director of the integrated thoracic residency, you have more time, but you're also the program director of the our cardiothoracic surgery fellowship where, and we are a two year training program. And so you have a very small increment of time to get them up to that next level, but at the same time realizing that people are starting at different starting points. Um, is, is that like one of the challenges that we have in education? Yeah, I mean, what's most rewarding to me is the is training the integrated and fast track residents. You know, I, I have a lot of enjoyment just working with general surgery residents in the past. And, and it's amazing to see a second and a third year resident, you know, putting cannulas in and sewing distals and proximals, and they just, they're like sponges, they just soak it in. And, um, you know, our PGY2 sewed a hemiarch the other day and was just like, I mean, so excited, you know, and the traditional um, fellows come in at all different levels, depending yeah. on where they've trained. And the majority of surgery programs limit access to cardiac surgery these days to get their other rotations done. And so I find that the PGY3s of the integrated paths are actually um, really ahead of the first year traditional residents from a cardiac standpoint. And so it's always... Um, it's always hard to see them compare themselves because they don't really compare. They're in absolutely different tracks, um, yet they all really support and mentor each other um, so nicely that it's fun to see all sides of that. That's that's incredible. Um, as we pivot to kind of the the last phase of our interview today, um, I, I wanted to get your perspectives um, based on your life journey, based on. Uh, the connections that you have. I mean, you've done a great, phenomenal job in terms of building um, diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, both at UAB and now here at the University of Utah. I wanted to really get your thoughts on some issues that we're, we're grappling with um, in our field. The first thing that's very obvious is that amongst all the different surgical specialties, we in CT surgery um, are doing a better job in terms of getting recruiting more women leaders into our specialty, but we haven't made a dent yet at the faculty level in terms of, especially, you know, you're a professor in cardiac surgery and you're a relatively a unicorn right now in our specialty. Can you reflect on um, what are some good things we're doing in our specialty and where other areas of opportunity are that we as a specialty still need to address going forward? I think that we are doing a really great job encouraging medical students and junior residents to pursue cardiothoracic surgery training. Um, the numbers have greatly improved. I, I would never expect for them to be at 50%, you know, female male balance just because of how challenging our specialties are. Um, but I worry about the first three to five years in practice, and I really worry that um, all of our surgeons aren't getting adequate support and mentoring after they finish. 
Um, I've seen a real um, trend of people changing positions within one year, two years, three years. And, um, and I think that is a problem with mentoring young um, where people are finishing and doing okay for six to 12 months. And then, you know, maybe they're freed between 12 and 18 months in their practice and have some negative outcomes. And then I think we're really struggling to support that group of um, early career surgeons. And so I'd really like to see, you know, more mentoring programs for early career surgeons, just as much as we're doing them for medical students and residents. Um, and, and that's one area that I've really focused in some of my diversity efforts and workforces. Um, I think we still really do need more diversity in CT surgery, you know. Um, what's made me push and challenge myself to get better through the years has just been my background and work ethic. And, um, you know, I don't know that I would have been able to crawl out of kind of you know, my negative position in my career without just having my family and my roots to kind of talk me through that. Um, and financially, I didn't have a choice, right? I had to work. Um, but I think that we need to have mentors that look just like all of our trainees. And until we can have enough mentors to support all of our trainees and faculty, then I worry that um, our junior career surgeons will get into trouble and I guess burn out you know that's what we yeah. talk about no and I and I and I appreciate what you were saying that the pandemic is also probably heightened some of those issues that the burnout issues and you know it's a it, it completely changed environment these days um with financial pressures being even more acutely so uh now than it even was as little as three years ago um, I appreciate you saying that. Um, the second aspect of is education paradigms. Um, the uh, there are some time tested things that we've always done in training, and it just seems like that's the way we've always done things. But then there's other aspects in education that are changing, or something that we should appreciate or change. Uh, what do you think cardiothoracic surgeon surgery as a, a specialty should really look into in terms of this is an area in education that is going to be definitely what we need to do. I mean, is it something like EPAs or are there other things that you think we need to embrace a little bit more in our specialty? Well, I think as we all know, everybody progresses kind of technically at different rates. Um, our simulation programs have greatly improved through the years. You know, I I was a true believer in simulation when I was a resident and a fellow. And I felt like, you know, maybe I sewed 10 distals, you know, in the operating room and I sewed a hundred distals in the simulation lab. And so to me, without simulation, I don't think I could have felt um, as competent. Um, the EPAs are a really interesting uh, kind of newer model for training and, um, and for the listeners, obviously, uh, EPA stands for Entrustable Professional Activities, and it's based on the paradigm that the training is a competency-based education model. That is, learners progress based on their level of competence. Correct, uh, Dr. Barra? Yeah, 
I think for general surgery, we've seen some really great um, competency-based skills and learning that are kind of coming up the pipeline that I think will be really great. Um, I'm not exactly sure how we're going to do it in cardiac yet. You know, is it going to be the number of cases that folks do, or is it going to be certain check marks along each case? Will it be speed of anastomosis, or will it be, you know, how you crawl yourself out of certain case scenarios that happen in the operating room? I mean, to me, it's not actually the technical skills that make cardiac surgeons great. It's how we get ourselves out of trouble or keep ourselves out of trouble as cases go. And I'm not sure how to model the competency on that yet, other than um, a simulation type curriculum where we just practice. Um, so it's something that we're brainstorming. Um, I hope that we can be leaders um, in the CT EPAs you know, down the road. The final domain I wanted to really explore with you is um, you have really embraced or you are very passionate about diversity efforts and uh, the intersectionality. But I've also been in meetings with you where you've always said that diversity doesn't mean you compromise standards any. In fact, diversity is an engine to drive standards even higher. Uh, can you talk about um, your approach to diversity efforts and some of the work that you're doing right now at the leadership level? Well, Tom, I grew up as a child um, being told that speaking Spanish is a negative trait. And so even though my father's side of the family never my grandparents never spoke any English and we spoke Spanish with them. But when I would try to speak Spanish with my father, he would always answer in English. So, and that was until uh, the day he passed away that he um, was ashamed of his heritage. And I guess as I've gotten older, I've realized that um, all of those qualities are extraordinarily important and it's what makes us better. Um, as a community, as um, physicians who care for our patients, as educators who teach the next generation. Um, I'm passionate about it because I think we just have to acknowledge it and talk about it. But I never want to be pushy about it or judged, essentially, that I'm, I'm pushing it. Um, and so I have a real, I mean, I have a real inner dilemma, you know, on the leadership level of, of advocating for, you know, numbers that diversity should look like or what I think diversity should look like. But I, I worry that everybody is afraid to talk about it and that it's losing, um, some of the passions that we did early in the pandemic. Um, and I Me think- Meaning, meaning the, the, pro the protests were there, but the follow-up actions haven't come through sequentially. Yeah, I mean, we had, a, we had a national mentoring Zoom a couple weeks ago and turnout was half of what it was last year. And 
And you know, I think that the the answers that we got are that people are are really kind of tired of of pushing diversity efforts because we're not seeing a huge amount of progress. And I worry that we still need to keep talking about it and keep it in our radar and keep supporting, um, you know, all comers to our specialty. Um, and that's the only way that I think we will make positive progress as a specialty for our patients. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts, uh, Dr. Pereira, for our listeners in terms of reflecting back, I mean, uh, on an amazing life journey and all the obstacles you've overcome to be, be one of our uh, leaders in the world of CT surgery. Uh, thought, final thoughts for our listeners in terms of the path ahead or some pearls of wisdom you can dispense? You know, Tom, I have to say that I, I learned from all of you in our societies and I always, you know, somebody asked me a few years ago why they had never met me at national meetings. And I said, well, I was that shy resident, you know, sitting in the corner, afraid to speak up. And so, I mean, I challenge myself every day to try to make our specialty and our resident training um, better for the next generation. And, um, and I think we still have a lot of work to do on that, but I mean, I look at it kind of like, hey, I'm 51 and I'm starting over, you know, I'm academically so far behind. And um, I see some of these applicants to integrated programs with 79 publications, publications. and all these things. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, I'm really, I'm really starting over. So, so I think all of us can make our successes and little different small places of our specialty and realize that there's no perfect place to get to the top of the leadership world. Um, but I'll keep plugging away and, you know, take one day at a time and just keep, I think, pushing for what we all think is right and what we need for um, our next generation and our specialty. Well, Dr. Pereira, uh, on behalf of the specialty, I want to thank you for taking the time today to give us a little bit of insights uh, into um, uh, how Dr. Pereira arrived at her current leadership roles. But uh, really, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, engage with us uh, on this episode of uh, Same Surgeon, uh, Different Life. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.